0: good morning, you guys. So speaking of the kids, uh, kids, you guys are dismissed. So that's preschool through fifth grade and you guys can head right out as they're going. Didn't the girls do a lovely job on the scriptures this morning? Yes. (laughs) Who doesn't need a reminder about that sneaky snake in the garden, right? (laughs) So, um, and I just want to follow up. You know, Heather's announcement about the children's ministry, so important. I mean, there are not many ministries in the church that are more important than uh, getting the word of God into those little hearts while they are little. And of course, we do have people just beating down the doors all the time, begging, you know, how can I get involved in the children's ministry? You know, where can I? We have a waiting list of people. But this is your chance. If you want to be involved, there'll be a line forming outside afterward. No, um, I think as, as Susie said, God puts a special call on your life if that's what he has for you. And so if you do feel like that's something the Lord is leading you to do and you're sensing Uh, an urging there uh, do talk to Heather and find out about how you can get involved we're not necessarily going to throw you in a room of first graders and expect you just to sink or swim but um, there's ways you can get involved you know short of having to prepare and teach and stuff like that so um, excited for that also uh, super excited for that 30 days to understanding the Bible book we try to do this about every fall of course we haven't done it for the last couple years But as I think I mentioned last week, um, this is a book that everyone here in this building would benefit from um, being a part of. So I know some of you may have taken it when we have done it the last couple times, but I don't care if you've been in the Lord for three days or three years or 30 years, this book will bless you. Um, It really helps us just to kind of get our arms around the Bible, kind of that 20,000 foot view of the Bible, uh, so we don't miss the forest for the trees. And um, the way that it works, as Susie mentioned, is that everybody gets a book, and we'll give those books out after service today when we huddle up in the back. Um, But you take your book home, and each day you read one little chapter. It should take you about 15 minutes, and you go through the information. And we all do that on our own for seven days. And then next week, after service, we just get together for a little huddle, and we just kind of share some of the things that the Lord ministered to us through the work that week, Uh, a place where the Lord just flipped on a light bulb and, and something made sense that has never made sense to you, you know, we kind of just share those aha moments with one another. So it's not so much a group that, you know, I'm teaching or anything, but I just, I love this because I just get to hear from you and how it is that the Lord has spoken to you. Um, If you can't hang out after service, for a few minutes for the next four weeks, that's okay. You can go through this on your own and pop in when you want to or pop in when you're able to, but uh, super important, I think this is great. It'd be good for the youth, good for adults, good for all of us. So um, I thought we had a limited number of books. At this point, I think we have like 40, so I think that should be plenty, but... um, Anyway, love to have you be part of that if you can. So we have a great text this morning, a super exciting text this morning. Um, Did I forget any announcements, anything important? I'm getting a no. I'm okay then. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless uh, his word today. So Father, we do thank you. Lord, we thank you for all the things that you do through our wonderful church family here, Lord, and the way that you minister to us, Lord, the way that you minister through us as you equip us, Lord, and send us out. Uh, into the world, Lord. And we we pray, Lord, as we go to your word this morning, we pray the same thing, Lord. We pray each and every time we look at the Bible, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher first and foremost, Lord. We pray that that teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord, that he would be the one who would be leading and guiding and instructing all of us, Lord. Pray you'd give us ears to hear what he would say to your church, Lord, individually Uh, Lord, as well as collectively. And so we thank you, Lord. We pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to look today at verses 7 through 18. And if you're looking at Colossians chapter 4, you probably already know that we are about to finish this book this morning, and so that's always kind of an exciting thing. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you, and you can raise your hand, and one of the guys will bring one to you. Um, You can keep that Bible if you don't have one. Of course, you can use a Bible that's on your phone, whatever's best for you. But um, the book of Colossians, I think, has been such a tremendous blessing, and kind of as we said when we started, this is an often- overlooked, I think, undertaught little letter from the Apostle Paul written to this group of believers in the first century in this little kind of obscure town of Colossae, nothing really to talk about with that town except that they had this big problem, right? They had this big sort of wave of this false teaching called ultimately the Colossian heresy, which was threatening These brand new first century believers in how they were working to try to mature in their faith. These false teachers were coming in telling them that they had to add in and they had to add on all of these different things to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. Remember, they had to add in all these human philosophies and they had to add in all of these different types of legalism as a means to become more mature or to be complete in their faith, right? To enjoy that deeper knowledge of the faith or that that fullness of their faith. And Paul writes to them in this letter and he says, nonsense. He says, you have everything that you need. It's all there in Jesus Christ and in him alone, not just for your salvation, but also for your sanctification, right? That growth that we all have in holiness. And so we've watched Paul In some of the, the loftiest language and some of, I think, the most powerful passages in all of the New Testament, we've watched him so very clearly demonstrate the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus. And once again, just the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. And then in these last few weeks, he really kind of focused in on how it is that that gospel really reaches in and impacts every area of our lives. Because that gospel creates this new culture through our lives, right? This gospel culture, if you will. And that culture should be evident in our churches and in our homes and in our marriages, in our families and in our workplaces. Basically, each and every sphere of influence that we have, every relationship that we have in our lives. And so now this morning as we finish up this wonderful letter, we kind of come finally to this final section like we so often see in Paul's letters. And in your Bibles, it might be titled something exciting like final greetings, right? Or closing salutations, or something equally just a, you know, really a grabber, right? And it's a section which a lot of people are inclined to kind of skim through just so they can get through to the end of the letter. And really what you see as you glance at it is just kind of a list of these hard to pronounce names of people, about 11 of them in fact. And yet what happens is when we look at those names, what we find out and I think what we're what we're reminded of is that the gospel is all about people. Right? The gospel is about God and people, God and people being brought back into this loving, personal relationship, right, through that process of reconciliation, right? And then those people then being brought together with this love one for another as we're brought together in love through Christ. And then we're reminded that it's this work and this ministry of getting that gospel out then to the world it then involves these very same people, right? It involves gospel people like us, right? And these people are important to Paul, the ones he mentions here. Of course, they're important to God, right? In a very unique and a very special way. Altogether, it's interesting, as you look in the New Testament, there are more than 100 different people, right? More than 100 different Christian believers that are connected to the Apostle Paul, both in the book of Acts and who are greeted specifically by name in one of his letters. If you've read the last chapter of the book of Romans, you know that in that chapter alone, Paul mentions 26 different people by name. And again, as Paul includes all of these greetings in his letters, I think that there is a reason, right? Beyond just the obvious reason of Paul wanting to say hi to these people and not being able to just shoot off a text to them to do it, right? But I think that there's a much deeper reason why the Holy Spirit would have all of these names and these greetings included in these inspired gospel texts. And that's because in doing it, What's happening is that the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, is reminding us of the many ways that we as Christians really belong to one another, the ways that we belong to one another in fellowship and in love and in prayer and in instruction and support and in service, as the Spirit is simply reminding us all as the people of God that that is exactly what we are. Right? We are the people of God, right? We're a community of God, and we're not supposed to be isolated from one another, right? And again, our faith isn't just this individual thing where like we've we've become saved and now I have this relationship with God, which of course I do, but even more so it's a reminder of the fact that I'm saved and now I'm a part of something that's bigger. And so, What we see here with Paul in this closing section, I think we just get a beautiful picture of this bigger picture. This bigger picture of some of these different connections that the apostle Paul had because of the gospel. And I'm calling it the bigger people picture of the gospel. And we see it starts right here as Paul first sends this special word about a special man. Look in verses seven and eight of Colossians chapter 4, he now writes, he says, "Um, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. So the first one of these individuals, right, these gospel people that Paul mentions is this man Tychicus, right? Very likely he was the one who was carrying the letter as well as bringing some, this is right off of his Instagram, by the way, so that's a current photo, which is good. He's bringing the letter. He's also bringing this other news, kind of personal news about Paul that Paul didn't want to crowd the letter up with. Now, we've seen this guy Tychicus many years before this. In Acts chapter 20, he was one of the men that came with Paul from the Roman province of Asia. Remember, they went up to Jerusalem to carry that offering that they had collected from the churches there to help the struggling believers in Jerusalem and Judea. So, he had this long history of ministering with Paul. We also see him mentioned by Paul in his letters to the Corinthians and to Titus and to Timothy. We actually see that he's often sent by Paul to deal with some of these issues that the churches were experiencing. In Titus 3, Paul sends him to Crete. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul sends him to Ephesus. And so not only is this a man who continually ministered with Paul, but he also ministered for Paul. And I think it's often said, what, that the greatest ability is dependability. And of course, this is true, and it's true of Tychicus, right? This was a guy who just got things done. And so Paul describes him, he says he's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. And I think that this is a great reminder for us of what's really valued in God's economy. And that's someone who simply serves and who serves faithfully. right? So gospel people are serving people. That word there that Paul uses for minister, it's diakonos. Right? It's where we get our word what? Deacon. And it simply means servant. And then when Paul calls him a fellow servant, that's actually that word bond servant, right? A doulos, which we've seen before. It's that person who's a servant by choice. That's the very same word that Paul often uses to describe himself. And it's a word that just doesn't talk about the activity that's involved. But really, it's talking about that deep commitment that it takes to have that kind of a life, right? That deep commitment of somebody who willingly gives up their own life to live instead in a life of this submitted service to someone else. And of course, it perfectly describes the kind of life that we're supposed to have for Jesus. So Tychicus, he's a beloved brother, a faithful servant, and a fellow Bond servant of the Lord and when you start to see it in these terms that is quite an impressive resume right it's a resume that we would all do well to have attached to our names because that's a resume that really reflects the heart and the example of Jesus himself. Jesus himself who we know took on the form of a bond servant. Right? Being made in the likeness of men. That that Mark says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We've said it before, but I think it's important that in God's economy, right? Opposite from what we look at in the world, the true greatness and the real influence that we have in people's lives, it is not based on how many people are serving us, but how many people that we are serving. That's the way we gain influence and that's the way we get the gospel into people's lives is by serving them. Just like we see Tychicus here was serving Paul and now he's being sent here by Paul. And next we see that he's not gonna be coming alone In the next verse, we see that he's going to be making this journey with this letter, bringing this news, it says in verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all the things which are happening here. Now, the name Onesimus may sound familiar if you've ever read Paul's letter to Philemon, just one chapter long. Quick one, right? Remember, Onesimus was that runaway slave who was originally from Colossae, who had tried to escape from punishment by fleeing to Rome, where just by chance, right, he happens to run into the Apostle Paul, who just happens to win him to Christ, and then he sends Onesimus back to his master with this letter from Paul that asks Philemon, first of all, to receive Onesimus, but then even more so to forgive Onesimus, right? And that letter is such a beautiful story. It's a story about the triumph of grace over law, and it's a picture of the incredible transition that all of us make from that place of slavery into that place of family right, as a result of giving our lives to Jesus Christ. And so what's especially beautiful here in Paul writing about Onesimus is he could have written, and maybe he probably should have written to be more clear, he could have written about Onesimus, that escaped slave who I'm sending back to his master. But instead, notice this, he calls him what? A faithful and beloved brother. Right? And very clearly, he lets all of the Colossian believers know that Onesimus is now part of the family. Right? He says right here that he's one of you. And Onesimus, I think, is such a great reminder that whatever it was that you were before you came to the Lord Jesus, that you are not that any longer. Amen. That as Paul says, right, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creation, right? Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And you are now a part of this beautiful gospel community of gospel people where we know that there is neither Jew nor Greek or slave nor free or male nor female. He says, you are all one in Christ Jesus, right? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we all stand there equally in need of the grace of God and of the mercy of God. And we are all now equally a part of the family of God because we've been forgiven by God. So gospel people are forgiven people, amen? That's what Onesimus reminds us. Gospel people are forgiven people who now live and who walk and who serve each and every day in the light of that wonderful forgiveness that's now ours because of Jesus. It's now ours because we are gospel people in Jesus Christ. So these are the two men who were sent by Paul from Rome, sent back to Colossae. And now next we're gonna see this list of men who stayed with Paul in Rome. Starts in verses 10 and 11. There's three Jewish brethren, right, who had now come to Christ and were laboring with Paul in the gospel. He says in verse 10, he says that Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So each of these three men here, right, remembered for their faithfulness to the Apostle Paul in this this time of his need. Aristarchus, he was a Macedonian from Thessalonica. We met him also back in the book of Acts. He was one of Paul's travel companions. He was also with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 19 when that Ephesian mob seized them. He was also there with Paul as Paul set sail in Acts 27 under Paul's imprisonment on his trip to Rome where he is now. So what this means is that this same guy Aristarchus would have also survived and have been a part of that incredible storm and that shipwreck ultimately there on the island of Malta. And all of this stuff has led some people, I think, to point out that Aristarchus had a dangerously bad habit of always being with the Apostle Paul in the very worst experiences of his life. And now here this guy is again with Paul during his imprisonment. Now most likely Aristarchus wasn't even an official prisoner, but more likely he was a voluntary prisoner so that he could be there to help and to comfort the Apostle Paul. So he was likely, literally, a voluntary prisoner for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So I think Aristarchus is such a reminder for us that gospel people are faithful people. right? People who just keep faithfully putting one foot down in front of the other no matter where that path leads, that kind of person who's always there when you need him most. Right, such a great example of someone who didn't bail out when the going got tough, but really stuck it out there with the Apostle Paul. Which, ironically, is exactly what this next brother who Paul mentions did not do, at least at first. And this is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, this is none other than John Mark, right? the human author of what? The Gospel of Mark. who played a very important part in the early history of the church. His mother, you remember, in Acts chapter 12, she ministered to the saints there in Jerusalem. And as we've seen, he was the cousin of Barnabas, who we know was one of Paul's primary and kind of his original co-laborers in the gospel. Barnabas traveled with Paul on the first of his missionary journeys in Acts 13 and 14, and they took... Young John Mark along with them as a helper. Right, he was probably in charge of the travel arrangements and maybe the the food and the supplies and stuff like that. But unfortunately, in this case, what we see in Acts chapter 13 is when the going got tough right there at the beginning of the trip, John Mark got going, right? He abandoned. The whole trip, he returned home to Jerusalem, and he left the the team and this ministry really in the lurch. So much so that years later, when we see Paul and Barnabas preparing for what would be their second trip, Uncle Barnabas again says, hey, let's bring along John Mark, and Paul says no. And he meant no. So much so, you know the story, right? The contention was so great between Paul and Barnabas over Mark is that they ended up completely splitting up and going off in two separate directions. And yet again, the beauty here in seeing Mark's name in this book is it's this reminder at this point that the past was in the past. And we see that the grace of God had not only been at work through the Apostle Paul, but also what? In the Apostle Paul, right? Time had changed him. It had softened him. And at this point now we see that he has welcomed Mark back into the work of the ministry and that he even values his contribution to the ministry. At the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says this. He says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me in the ministry. So by the grace of God, Mark's a man who came back from his first failure and became a valuable servant for the Lord, who, like we said, is going to go on even to write one of the gospel accounts. So John Mark is this great encouragement to every one of us who has somehow failed or we have fallen short right? We've we've bailed out or we've given up on some early attempt to serve God, right? And yet we see that Mark's past failure didn't stop him from this future usefulness. And that, in essence, that's the heart of the gospel itself, isn't it? Right? Mark's failure wasn't the end of the story. He was given yet another chance. And I know that you've heard this before, Right? But aren't you glad that we serve the God of the second chance and the third chance right, and the fourth chance? And he's running out of numbers for me. I know that. right? But we serve a God who knows that great things can often come right out of the ashes of our greatest failures because gospel people are reclaimed people. Right. Gospel people allow the Lord to bring us back and to reclaim us from our failures and then to use us. So I know there are probably some of you here in this room, you may feel like John Mark. Right? You may feel like you, maybe you missed the mark. See what I did there? Missed the John Mark. I'm full of them. I'll be here all week. You feel like you missed the mark, like maybe there was something that the Lord gave you to do for him. Maybe there was a door of ministry that he opened for you, and you just didn't walk through it, right? But John Mark allows us to take heart, right? I don't care how badly you think you messed up. I don't care how badly even that you did mess up, but I'm here to tell you that God is not through with you. So don't despair because John Mark is a man just like I myself am a a man who blew it badly and yet came through it ultimately. And you can do the very same thing. And here's John Mark years later now with Paul right back there at his side. He's been reclaimed back to the ministry. He's now faithful in the ministry. And now we have this guy Jesus Justice right there in verse 11 Again, here's another Jewish believer who was there with Paul, and yet we know absolutely nothing more about him except that his Jewish name was probably Joshua, right? A very common Hebrew name at the time. It means Jehovah is salvation, right? Now, it wasn't unusual at all for Jewish people also to have a Roman name as well when his Roman name would have been Justice, And so he decided he was going to go by that in the first century. I think I probably would have chosen the same thing instead of to go by my name of Jesus just so that there wasn't any confusion, right, about who exactly I was. But what I love about this man, Justice, is that, again, this is the only mention of him anywhere in the Bible, right? So other than this, right, whether it's who he is or what he did, He is completely unknown to us. Yet, although he's unknown to us, he's known to Paul. He's known to the other believers here at the time. And most importantly, what? He's known to the Lord. And he just keeps faithfully working in the work of the gospel. Because gospel people are humble people and this is something so important for us you know it's it's not about human recognition it's not about fame it's not about serving in some kind of a way that we're gaining notoriety i mean the problem is that in our media, media saturated saturated i can't even talk in our media saturated world of likes and followers and all of this even in the church we can so easily get caught up in this kind of thing and we've got these celebrity pastors and we've got celebrity Christian authors and we all want to be celebrity servants. Right? You know, we want to be known, we want to have this name and be recognized for what we do, but it's such a trap. It's such a trap that we all need to be aware of and we need to be on guard against and we really need to watch out for. The important thing is only that we're known and that we're seen by the Lord. There are so many really faithful Christians, many, many Christians who will labor and labor faithfully and labor humbly and they will serve the Lord their entire lives and they will never have any earthly recognition whatsoever. But what they will have is that someday they're going to hear what, well done my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I make you ruler over many things. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. Did you know that there are teams of people who get here in this building each and every Sunday at 8 a.m. or even before so that we can all have church at 10 a.m.? Did you know there are teams of people who minister each week to the kids, as Heather just talked about, right? And they miss out on the service more times in a month than they get into the service, right? Did you know there are teams of people who work consistently during the week just to make sure that all of our media is happening and to keep the church doors open and all these things? Now, pop quiz this morning, right? How many of those faithful people can you actually name? Probably not many. Because most of them serve so very quietly and they all serve so very humbly because they're serving as unto the Lord. So just a word of encouragement. If you feel like you're unknown or underappreciated or that nobody even knows what you exist or sees what you do, even though you've been doing that thing faithfully for so many years, it's okay because the Lord sees right, and the Lord So, we've seen Tychicus and Onesimus and Aristarchus and Mark and Justice, right? These are serving, forgiven, faithful, reclaimed, humble, gospel kind of people. And now Paul makes a special mention. This guy gets two two whole verses, right, to himself. A special mention of another gospel person. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. So Epaphras, remember we said when we started this letter, he was likely a resident of Colossae. Probably the one who first founded the church there in Colossae, very possibly also the churches there in Laodicea and Hierapolis, which were very close. He probably had been one to faith in Jesus on one of his trips into Ephesus, which was sort of the regional sort of hub of that area. And he had probably heard Paul preach, right, been one to the Lord, taken his faith back started these works, and now as this threat of this heresy started to move into Colossae and to threaten the word, the work there, Epaphras goes fervently to prayer. And that prayer is probably what propelled him to then travel to Rome to seek out some counsel from the Apostle Paul about this problem. That phrase there where Paul says that Epaphras is always laboring fervently for you in prayers, the word that he uses there, it means that Epaphras was agonizing in his prayers. And it has the idea, it's often used in the context of somebody who's giving birth, right? A woman who's, you know, going through pain and it's bringing forth something, in this case, prayer. So here's Epaphras laboring in prayer for these believers, specifically that they might stand perfect and stand complete, right? That they wouldn't get derailed by all of the things that these false teachers were trying to bring in. Now, Epaphras was a guy, he didn't pray and then get distracted and then forget what he was praying about, like some of us can do, right? Epaphras was a guy who labored in prayer until it gave birth to something, right? Until there was a spiritual breakthrough, right? A birth of renewal and revival in the hearts of these people that he was praying for. And what we see then is that his prayers to the Lord, now under the inspiration of the Lord, have just been fleshed out in Paul's letter to the Colossians, right? That that they would do what? That they would stand perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. Isn't that the entire point of Paul's Letter. Right here came these Gnostic believers and they were offering these Christians all this perfection and maturity, but they simply couldn't deliver the goods, right? Because it only comes through Jesus Christ, right? Because in Him, Paul said, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. So I think Epaphras is such a wonderful reminder for us that great things, right? The greatest things are accomplished in prayer, right? Because gospel people are praying people. And the truth is, and we see it right here, we can touch many more lives through our prayers than we probably can even touch through our actual lives. The prayers of Epaphras touched the lives of people in at least three different cities and then right into the lives of each and every one of us here this morning as we sit with this letter in our laps because this letter was birthed at least in part from the prayers of Epaphras. So maybe you feel like there's not that much that you can do for the kingdom or that you can't do that much for the church or you can't do that much for the ministry here. Well, you can pray. Right? Pray for us. Pray for the church. Pray for the ministry that the Lord is doing in us and that he wants to do through us. So each time you pray, pray for us and let's just see what the Lord might do. You know, as his people, we need to remember the power of prayer. And we need to remember that all of these things that seem humanly impossible, that they are very possible with God. We need to remember that at those times when we have little strength, right, and we are so limited in our ability to affect any real change that our God that we're praying to, he's the God of all strength. He has no limits and we have this amazing intimacy and this connection with him through our prayers. You know, maybe there's a situation in your home in your life, and you feel like you can't minister any hope into that situation, well, you can absolutely minister hope to it through prayer. And we look around at our world, and in particular, we look around at our nation, and all we see is what? We see strife, and we s- trouble, and we see contention, and just this sense of perplexity, and we wonder, how in the world is it ever going to get solved? Well, it's going to get solved through prayer. Right? Prayer is the weapon that we as gospel people have. It's the weapon of the people of God. We need to recognize the privilege of it, and we need to recognize and really believe in the power of it. And like Epaphras, we need to be zealous in it. Now, look at verse 14. We're going to see a familiar face because Paul goes on and he says, Luke the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So here's two more men who were there in Rome with Paul, and these two guys are a study in contrasts. Now Luke, of course, a unique man, an important man in the early church. He was a Gentile, and yet he was chosen by God to write both, what? The Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. In fact, Luke is the only Gentile writer of any book of the Bible. And he stands out for the book of Acts, not just as the author of the book, but as an accomplished and a brilliant and a well-respected historian in his own right. Because the book of Acts is regarded even by the secular historical uh, community as an amazingly accurate historical document of first century history. Secular historians read the book of Acts and they marvel at all of the amazing geographical and historical and the cultural understanding of Luke that comes out not just in that book, but in his gospel account as well. So here we learn too, that not only is he this incredible historian, but he's also a trained physician. Right now, the profession of medicine had been perfected by the Greeks. Physicians at the time, of course, were held in the highest regard. And we know that with all of the physical challenges and the difficulties that the Apostle Paul suffered from during his journeys, it was a great blessing for him from the Lord to have Luke, this trained physician, right? This beloved physician as one of his constant companions. And we know that Luke was with him right up until the end. And all of that to say this, right? Here's this brilliant man, right? This accomplished physician, this acclaimed historian. And I think that Luke is such a shining example of a professional person who takes and uses all of their skills in their service to the Lord, right? Because Luke was a skilled physician. He was a careful historian, but most of all, He was a devoted Christian, and he devoted all of that talent to the work of the gospel because gospel people are devoted people. So it's an encouragement, whatever it is that you do, even in the most secular sense, God can use it, and God can redeem it, and he can sanctify it, and he'll use it for his holy purposes as long as you simply make yourself available to him and you set those parts those parts you set those gifts apart to him say Lord this is what I can do now what can you do with that and of course we know he can do so much as we simply dedicate those things or we devote them to be used by him to advance the kingdom instead of just to advance our own comfort which is exactly what this other guy, Demas, ultimately did. Now, Demas is a man who's mentioned three different times in Paul's letters, and each of these mentions makes up a pretty sad picture. Because in Philemon, at the end, uh, Paul refers to him as Demas, my fellow laborer. And he's linked in that other letter with these same three good men, Mark, Aristarchus, and Luke. Now here, by the time we get to Paul writing this letter to the Colossians, he's simply called what? Demas. There's no special word of condemnation, not even a special word of identification, And since the letters to the Colossians and to Philemon were probably penned by the Apostle Paul around the same time, they may have even been sent together once they were done, some have speculated that the decline in Demas' faith must have been on a fast track because it's by the time we get to the third mention which tells us what finally became of dear Demas because when we get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says that Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Now we've got John Mark who we also saw also forsook Paul and yet he was reclaimed, right, and restored. But Demas here, he forsook Paul and apparently was never heard from again, right? The sin of Demas was that he chose the things of the world over the things of the Lord. He chose those things that entice all of us as believers, right? Those things that that make us want to compromise our convictions or, or cool down our passions, right? The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life that John talks about. Those things that work at us little by little, slowly but surely, to pull us away from our devotion to the Lord. I love the way one author put it of Demas, He wrote this, that surely here we have the faint outlines of a study in degeneration, loss of enthusiasm, and failure in the faith. So here's Demas, a guy who probably thought he could serve two masters, but eventually he had to make a decision and he made the wrong one. And so Demas should be a warning to all of us, right? Because think about it, here's a man who was part of this inner circle of ministry with the Apostle Paul, right there by his side, right? And yet the love of the world drew him away from that. So we always need to be on our God, the world, the guard on our God. What is wrong with me today? We we should be on our God, right? We should be on our guard, right? The, The pull of the world is very, very powerful. Right? It can be so very alluring for any one of us, even if you're there in the upper echelons right? or the inner circles of gospel ministry. You can still be tempted and you can be drawn away by these enticements of the world. Right, But gospel people are devoted people. Right, They're devoted to the things and to the work of the Lord. We see that Luke was with Paul right to the end of his ministry, but here's Demas who deserted Paul. In the midst of his ministry. Then Paul writes in verse 15, he says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. So, Paul's next mention of this man, Nymphos, it's an interesting one because many believe that this man was a woman. Not in the sense that we have it today, right? But actually, that That we're talking about a woman here, right? The truth is that a lot of the manuscript evidence would point to the fact that the reference here is to Nympha, right? The feminine name and the church that is in her house. So either way, man or woman, what we do know is that this person must have been a wealthy person with a large enough house where the church could assemble. Understand it wasn't until we get about to the third century when Christianity would then become a state recognized and ultimately a state-sponsored religion, that's when church buildings started to be built. But before that, it met the the churches met primarily in homes. So nympha or nymphas, whichever, is a great example of a believer whom the Lord has blessed financially and is now using that blessing for kingdom purposes. Right? I think what Nympha shows us is that gospel people are generous people. Right? Gospel people are people who realize and who recognize that everything we have was given to us by the Lord. It still belongs to the Lord. Right? So gospel people hold loosely to material things and invest those things into kingdom things that the Lord is doing. Gospel people are generous people. Gospel people are giving people. Gospel people are tithing people. Yes, I just said that. (laughs) I said it, right? And here's what I'm going to add. We don't talk about this much, right? But I'm going to say if you're not currently giving, if you're not tithing of your income back to the Lord through the church, then you are only robbing yourself of your part in what the Lord is doing. When Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, remember they had financially sent a gift a couple different times to support him in his ministry. And you remember that Paul thanked them for their support, but he did it in an interesting way. He said, not that I seek the gift. He said, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. See, Paul understood the way that the spiritual accounting works in God's economy. And he knew that this generosity of the Philippians would be rewarded, right? As they were sowing to the blessing of the gospel things, then they would also be reaping that same blessing from those gospel things. So gospel people are generous people. So here we have all these names, right? We got nine of them so far. And behind each and every one of these names, of course, there's a person, a gospel person who's part of this gospel community. And we're reminded as we go through it, the way that the church is a family, right? The church is a collective unit. And we need to remember that, especially here where we live in our highly individualistic culture, right? We in the West We are the most individualistic people that have ever lived on the face of this earth. Now, of course, I'm painting with a broad brush, right? And I'm speaking in broad terms of Western culture today, but that's just the way we think, isn't it? It's bred into us, right? Look out for number one, right? How does this impact me, right? We have such a high value that we place on independence and on you know we highlight self-accomplishment we think very individualistically and oftentimes what happens is that that can tend to bleed over can't it right into the church and we fail to recognize how much we need each other but it's just like paul would say to the corinthians Right? In the same way that every part of our human body makes a contribution to the body as a whole, the body of Christ is designed to function and to grow and to move forward in the ministry of the gospel in the very same way. Right, Just as the body through one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Now I will say we're super blessed in our body here, We've got hands and we've got feet and we've got heart and hearts and legs. We have serving people and forgiven people and faithful people and reclaimed people and humble people and praying people and devoted people and we have generous people all working together in the work of the gospel. Because we've all been called together and we, we're, we've had our hearts knit together in Jesus by one thing and look what Paul encourages them next He's closing, starting really now with these final words. He says in verse 16, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So here's the thing that unites us all as gospel people. It's the gospel itself. It's the word of God. Paul says, hey, make sure you share this letter with all the churches around you and make sure you read the letter that I wrote to them. Now, we don't have a letter that we recognize as the epistle to the Laodiceans, and it's not because somehow it was lost, but more likely what this is talking about is the letter to the Ephesians. Because the letter to the Ephesians more likely likely was written to all the churches in that area right, to Ephesus and Laodicea or Hierapolis, right, and they assumed it would make its way there to Colossae as well. It was making its way all around. But the point is that here there's this hunger that they all had for the word of God. Here they've just received this letter from the great apostle himself and they recognized that it was special, that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and there was such a hunger for it and for any part of the scriptures that they could possibly get their hands on and then make copies of and then send out to others. Because though Paul, Paul wrote very often to these individual churches to correct individual issues in those churches and yet what we know now And what they already knew then is that all of these letters can apply equally to all the churches all through the centuries. Why? Because Hebrews 4.12, right? The word of God is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Or, or, as Paul would write to Timothy, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, it's breathed out onto the page by God. He says it's profitable for doctrine, or teaching, or reproof, correction, instruction, that the man of God may be equipped and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right, all across different times and cultures, the Word of God has this transcendent message for the human heart, right? It's a message that like it transcends culture and it speaks directly right into the human condition. And we have so much more than just some copies of some letters. We have the entire revelation of the scriptures and we have it on our laps we have it at our fingertips we have it in our phones we have it floating around don't we over the internet we have all of it all together anytime we want to read it and what a tremendous blessing that is notice finally we finish up paul's made this kind of a general uh, encouragement to them to be focused on the word of god and now he adds this one final word of personal exhortation once again he says in verse 17 say to Archippus take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it now this is so super interesting to me because it's like just as Paul is winding down, right, he's made all of these kind of personal connections with this big list of people. He's gone more general with this encouragement to stay continuing in the word of God. It's almost like the spirit speaks to his heart and puts one more name on his heart to add to the list. One more person who needs this kind of a personal connection from the apostle Paul, and it's this man, Archippus. Now, Paul wrote another short word about this same guy. Again, the beginning of the book of Philemon, he says that Archippus, our fellow soldier, and he talks about the church that is in your house. So this is a man who was clearly important to Paul. And some have made the suggestion, based historically, that he was somehow connected with the church maybe at Laodicea, or even that he was the pastor of that church, right? That he was a fellow soldier in that work and of course we have no way to know for sure but whoever he was he certainly seems like he needed some encouragement and the sense of this exhortation to take heed is that he needed to to fulfill this ministry some of your translations might say see to it that you complete the ministry or be sure to carry out the ministry and it's not so much necessarily a word of rebuke but more so of encouragement. No doubt if he was serving in some sort of a pastoral role and he was ministering the word of God, it would surely be very possible that he was discouraged. Now I can tell you, I am super blessed to do what I do, but I will say that it's not always super encouraging. Right? And the work of a pastor can take its toll on a person because you really carry on your heart You carry all the burdens of all of the people that God's entrusted to your care. You do that and you deal with conflict that is in a church. And I will say that some pastors just seem to age before their time. Like this brother here. He's 42 years old. Pastoring a church. You guys with me today? Think about this guy, Archibus. If, if these same false teachers and the same false teachings that they were bringing, if they were working their way through his church, I could see how he would be very discouraged, probably wanted to give up, Surely just feeling defeated. And again, we don't know exactly what his ministry was, but whatever it was, Paul reminds him that he needs to persevere in it and fulfill it for one simple reason. And that's because the ministry that he had Came to him, where? From the Lord himself. Right, so for all of us, right? It's God himself who puts that call on our lives, right? A very specific call for each of our lives. He gives us things to do, and we need to recognize that they've come from him, and nothing less than from him, right? Because gospel people are called people by God the Bible says that God works in us and through us to complete all of these good works that he's prepared for us right Ephesians 2 that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so God has prepared the works and God has prepared the workers for those works Each of us uniquely, every one of us specifically, and not just that we'd be working in them, but look so that we'd be walking in them, so that we'd walk in that calling, right, that special place that he's given us in the body of Christ and in our church. So whether you're a teacher or a greeter or a setter-upper or a fixer-upper or a cleaner-upper, remember, it's actually the Lord who gives his servants those tasks. It's not me as your pastor who gives you a certain task. Thank the Lord, because I would screw that all up, right? It's not some other leader who gives you a task. Now, I'll say this. Guys, it might be your wife who gives you a task. And in that case, you just need to assume that it did come directly from the Lord. <laughs> like, I'm talking like from Sinai down directly from the Lord. Men, okay? It's the Lord, right? It's the Lord who gives us the things he wants us to do in the ministry. And he does that for us when we just simply say, Lord, I am yours and I wanna follow you and I want to be used by you. Now again, I'll say this, of course he uses people and he uses the structures that are in place of the church and other godly institutions, right? He'll use these people within those structures to give us things to do. In that ministry we're not called to be these Lone Ranger kind of Christians just sort of out there on our own riding around by ourselves shooting up whatever it is we think we're supposed to be shooting at right we need to work within the structures that the Lord has ordained for us but we also need to even look beyond those structures and beyond those people And we need to understand that whatever it is we're doing, that it came from the Lord himself. He's the one who's called me to it. And since this calling is from him, I need to fulfill it, which means I need to be faithful to finish it as he empowers me, right? The only reason we can fulfill our ministries is because we've been filled full with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Last verse, verse 18 it says, this salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So it was the custom of the day. Paul probably dictated his letters, right, to a secretary. They sort of, Then he sort of personally would sign off like a postscript, right, in his own writing or with his own hand. And he always, in every letter, right, In each and every letter that he wrote, including, by the way, the letter to the Hebrews, just for the sake of that discussion, (laughs) somebody was with me there, right? But Paul always adds this special sentence, commending his readers to the grace of God. Right. He even says to the Thessalonians that this is his authenticating mark. He says the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle. So I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So there's this beautiful combination of his own handwriting, right? Coupled with this characteristic blessing of God's grace. This is what Paul said gave proof That his letters were authentic and what is so great about this stay with me for just one more minute right do you now see we have come completely full circle in this letter because do you remember that Paul began this letter to the Colossian church where in grace right? Flip back over just two pages. Chapter 1, no sooner had he identified himself as the writer of the letter in verse 1, the very first thing he says to them in verse 2 is what? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this entire letter, it starts with grace, it ends with grace, and it is filled full to the brim with grace, just like our lives As believers and I think that is so especially fitting for this letter in particular right because he's confronting this heresy from these false teachers they're emphasizing all these elaborate systems you know they're saying that our real righteousness only comes through our works Right, they've come in and they've laid out all these things and they're talking about this deep way to live and here's a super secret way to be a super spiritual Christian. Here's the way to really be holy is to work hard at it, to earn God's favor. And Paul comes in and he says, no. He says, there's nothing more that you need. God has already given it to you by his grace. He said, you are complete in Christ and all you need to do is go deeper in him And go deeper in his grace. And there is nothing deeper than that. Right? Because it always is and it always was all about grace. Because gospel people are not only grace filled people, but we should be grace fueled people. Right? We live in grace and we run on grace. Right? America may say it runs on Duncan. But the truth is, as believers, we run on grace, and maybe a couple Krispy Kremes thrown in along the way. Paul is constantly—he's always pointing us back to God's grace because that's the only way that we can go forward in the Christian life. Is if that grace of God is what's sustaining us and empowering us and propelling us forward, right? God saved us by grace and now our entire Christian life is simply lived as this obedient, heartfelt response to this amazing grace that he has shown us. And why in the world would we let any false teaching or any false teacher pull us out of that grace and put us into some works-based situation? So as we finish up this wonderful study through this amazing and I think powerful often overlooked letter we need to remind ourselves we are already complete in Jesus Christ right we have everything that we need we are everything that God could ever want us to be and we really need to be aware of any kind of a teaching or teacher, or any kind of a group, or any new method that claims that it can give us something more than what we already have in Jesus. All All of God's fullness is in him, and he has perfectly equipped us to live the life that God wants us to live as gospel people, just like these gospel people right serving forgiven faithful reclaimed humble praying devoted generous called grace fueled kind of gospel people and all that we need to do now is simply let that life right the life of jesus that's dwelling in us and that's flowing through us we just need to let that life out let that life out so that we can then be this gospel light to all of the people who are around us now we are going to celebrate communion this morning it's the first sunday and so it's communion sunday and what a fantastic sunday to celebrate what jesus did for us on the cross worship team you guys can hop back up here what a sunday to celebrate the grace of god and all it is that god has done for us that we never deserved at all as we take the cup and as we We remember Jesus and his sacrifice as we take the blood and we remember his shed blood for us. So as we do this, the team's going to start to play. We're going to start to sing. You guys can come forward and receive the elements. I don't know if we have those crazy cups. Yeah, we have crazy cups for maybe a couple more months and then we'll have real food again at some point but you can go ahead and take the elements and take them back to your seat and just spend some time just between you and the Lord and I want to encourage you this morning to focus on that grace focus on all that we've been given through Jesus that we absolutely could not earn and never did deserve and just the way that that should propel us forward to continue to walk in him Right? as we've received Christ Jesus so we now need to just continue to walk in him and that's by his grace. Amen. So I say it every time we take communion. We have what's called open communion here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View. Which simply means you don't have to be a member of Calvary Chapel Mountain View to take communion. Because we don't actually have membership. right? If you show up and you're born again. You're part of our family. And communion is available to you. If you're not born again then communion isn't really for you because, again, it's as we look back and we remember what Jesus did for us that we could become born again. If that's something that you're interested in, you can certainly come forward. I think Pastor Jeff is over here and maybe Anne is, oh, she's hiding over there behind a plant. But they would be happy to talk to you and to share with you about how it is that you can um, give your life to Jesus and start out in this relationship with Him. So, anyway, lots to do as we as we go to communion now. Uh, let's worship the Lord. Let's remember His sacrifice, and uh, and let's pray. So, Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord, and we thank you for Your Word. We thank you for the encouragement that it brings us, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to to have communion, Lord, to partake in this special. Uh, ordinance, Jesus, that you left with us, uh, just as an opportunity to remember you and to remember your sacrifice. So Lord, we pray as we do each time we take communion, that you would quicken our hearts, Lord, and make it as real to us today as it was the first time we received it, Lord. May this never become something that that is common to us, um, but Lord, may the mystery and the wonder Just be new and fresh each and every time. So we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. And we pray even now that you would inhabit this time here, Lord, and that you would bless this time of communion. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.